Uh, two things I can promise you today. I will use much less scripture uh, than we've done in the last three weeks. So we're only going to have two major portions of scripture that we look at. And that we will land the plane for most of your questions that need to be asked. But there will be questions about yourself and about how God's wired you and what your purpose is when this is over. That's good. We want to answer those questions. In fact, as the church moves along, you'll see us start to answer more and more of those questions. But the best way to get them answered is to start doing something. We talked about this at the beginning of the year. It's the year for do something. We're getting past COVID. We're getting past some of the issues and lockdowns and the mask mandates and different things. And depending on your, your comfortability, we're not trying to force anybody into anything that they're not comfortable with, but we're moving past that as a culture. We're moving into herd immunity through vaccines and other, and other things. And so that's all good. You know, the, the, the thing I hear on the news is these two sides fight. One side fights and says it's not getting better and we should be in lockdown forever. And the other says it's, we're getting better, but maybe not fast enough. And the thing that I, I think... Uh, it challenges me a little bit from both sides as you guys we should all be on the same side that we're getting better because if we're not that just means we're all going to die so let's have some hope in that we're moving forward that doesn't mean that we haven't seen some real tragic ends we have but we also need to have hope in where God can take us through all this mess so have hope COVID's not going to be around forever so moving on from that today again we're in we're in week four and this is really about how do you pursue what God has for you. Okay, we talked about in week one, there's the stations or the, the influential areas that God might call you to, pastor, teacher, prophet, evangelist. Most of the time we think of those terms, we think of offices in the church. They are offices, offices in the church, but they are also influential areas in your life. I used Crystal last week as an example of a chiropractor, someone in the medical field, who is motivated as a pastor to keep people well. That's a pastor's job, right? To keep them in the flock, in the right fold. And then we use Crystal as an example of the power gifts and how healing God intends for us to work in the gifts of the Holy Spirit or healing. And then when Crystal lays her hands on people to adjust them and apply the science that she's learned, some of these people get healed. They get better through the treatment. Others, miraculously, and any doctor or nurse can tell you this, sometimes they apply the best knowledge, know-how that they have, science to the, to the situation that they have, and people just get better. That doesn't take away from the fact that God can supernaturally heal or is supernaturally healing. So Crystal obviously works in this area of kind of a pastoral motivation. She obviously has a gift of healing, whether it's through the applied knowledge or through the supernatural that God has given her. And then she could be, and I don't know Crystal's definite motivations, but she could be motivated by mercy, that God would give her a gift of mercy, and that's how she sees the world. And so we walk through the last three weeks of how these giftings compile on one another and how they give us a purpose in life. And last, in fact, last week we ended the sermon with the idea that we all have a purpose, a destiny, a dream to build, and that sometimes that dream has been amputated. Sometimes that dream is, has been put on pause for one reason or another. Well, today I want to encourage you, let's get our passion back. Let's get the idea of dream building back. Let's get the concept of kingdom building back into our hearts, and now let's go do something with it. Now that we know that we're equipped of God, now that we know that it's not just the pastor or eldership or leaders that are called to do the work of the ministry, that you're called just as much as I am, 
Now it's time to do something with it. So we need to put feet to our kingdom building efforts. All right? All right. All right. We're going we're gonna to get into it now. So many of you have heard me tell the story of how God shifted in our life. The grace lifted. We were, uh, we were youth leaders and young adult leaders in a church in, in Pittsburgh. And many of you have heard me lament over the idea that God called us away from a city with three professional sports teams to the Quad Cities. And you know how many professional sports teams we have. I love the River Bandits, and it's coming up in the rank, but they're just not the same thing. Well, they might be the same as the Pirates, so... <laughs> Anyway, I'm not in Pittsburgh anymore. I can say that without getting booze and tomatoes and baseballs thrown at my head. Anyway, God called us out of that city that we love so very much. But God called us into a new endeavor, an arena. And I talked about my story and how just what I used to do didn't feel right. But hey, practically, how does that work? Well, the fact is, God's grace moves all the time. God's, God's grace moves in development within us all the time. It doesn't take away from where God called us as a pastor. It doesn't take away from the gifts that God has given to us. It doesn't take away from the motivations of our heart. But it might change in how we express those gifts in an everyday format. So God moved on our heart that we need to make a change, and I didn't want to. In fact, Lori's crying over her McDonald's french fries. Please, God, don't make me move back to the Quad Cities. I don't want to do it. And again, we, we weren't looking through a lens of fulfillment. We were looking through a lens of complacency. That where we were at and what we were doing was perfectly fine. We could raise a family well on the salaries that we were making. We loved the church community that we were a part of. But God said there's more. And often when God says there's more, it's a scary thought. It's a scary proposition. Often when God says there's more, there's a stirring in your heart. And you get frustrated. Now, this is how it works in the corporate world and corporate structures and sometimes even in church structures. If you're the old guy, you're a dirty dog and you could never measure up. And if you're the new guy, what happens? You're the latest, greatest, they rave about you. Until the new guy turns into the old guy and they need to find a new guy and then the structure changes. Well, the same thing's true when God's grace starts to move. I don't care if you're serving at the door as a greeter. If that becomes the old thing that God's moving you away from, the first thing we start to do is bellyache and complain. Well, they need to change this and they need to do that. And I've been shaking the same stinking hand for 14 weeks and I can't imagine there's no new people coming in the door. Good, bless God. And you get mad. And you get frustrated. Why do you feel that frustration? It's not because anything's wrong with the greeting team. It's not because anything's wrong with the processes. The grace is moving. And sometimes we're so unaware that God's grace has moved in our life, we become so complacent, we don't become vision-oriented, that that complacency forces us into an air of complaining. Rather than asking God, okay, God, something doesn't feel right. What are you calling me to do now? What are you shifting or changing in my life? If you have your Bibles, turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 24. Chapter 9 and verse 24. We'll get there in just a second. But how do we put plans to the process of the changing grace or the developing grace that God has in our life? How do we put plans to that? Well, let's start here with verse 24. Don't you realize that in a race, everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize. So run to win. I love Paul's admonishment here. If we're going to do this thing, if we're going to be competitive in what God's called us to, at least go with a vision, at least go with a purpose, at least go with a goal. Move on to the next verse, 25. 
All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. Now, we talked about this idea last week that the ups and downs in life create for us a pattern, and that pattern is reminiscent of a crown. And we know that as Christians, someday we will take the crowns that we've earned in this life and throw them at the feet of Jesus because he is one who is crowned with many crowns. These prizes that we win... Really, if we have a biblical understanding, they're not silver and gold. They're not accomplishments in the church. They're not leveling up in your spirituality. They're the lives that we've affected for the gospel. So what that means is as God's grace transitions in our life, it transitions for a purpose, to reach more people, to be more effective in our reach, to spread the gospel in our spheres of influence. So when Paul's talking here, he's talking about people like you and I who are developing in their faith, developing in their call, and that there's a prize that we're going after. Move on to verse 26. So I run with purpose in every step. I'm not just shadow boxing. Now, some of you might be well aware of some of the fight training, but shadow boxing, there's a purpose behind it. Good technique. You know how to actually throw a punch. You know how to reflect and dodge a punch or parry a punch. But a shadow boxer who's in the ring by himself, shadow boxing, ultimately never wins a prize. He doesn't win the purse. He doesn't have that championship belt. Only when he steps in the ring with purpose, only when he steps on the battlefield with purpose does he win anything of substance or merit. Moving on to verse 27. I discipline my body like an athlete. I train it to do what it should do. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. Paul wasn't saying he'd be disqualified from the faith. He was saying that he would fight a battle, he would run a race, and he would be disqualified from the end result. Why? Because he hadn't trained well. He hadn't purposed in his heart what his goal was to accomplish. He wasn't listening to the grace that God was speaking so loudly through in his life. He was afraid that if he didn't listen to his heart and where God was leading him, that he would disqualify himself. Now, we all know people like that. They sit on the sidelines in life. They never really accomplish all that they could. Why? Because they've sat too long. They're not in the race. They're not disciplining themselves. Now, I know discipline's a dirty word now. It's not something we talk about a lot. But Paul uses that as a metaphor. That you and I, well, not totally a metaphor, but that you and I would put our lives in perspective. That we would understand we're called for a purpose, we're called for a high purpose to win, and that God set us up to win in life. Our, our tagline at this church is reaching people, changing lives. The secondary, the secondary tagline should be simple. We help people win. That's the goal of the church. I want you to win at what God's called you to do. I don't want you to wonder and hope and Someday figure out finally when you're close to death that maybe God called you to something more than just an average ordinary life. I want you to win in the pursuits that God's called you to, in everything that he's called you to. Nothing will make me happier. You come to me and say, hey, pastor, I think God's called me to do X. You know, the first thing I'm gonna say is, all right, how do we start? We don't say no to those things very often in this church. Now, there are a few things that, I will be honest, I'll say no to. I don't believe that this church is called to really get deep into some of the uh, end times theological stuff. One, it's super confusing, and who knows who's right. 
And we can go in 40 million different directions. Now, if that's where God's called you, that's great. Maybe the grace of God is moving on your life and you need to be at a church that preaches that. But we're never going to get too deep into that. Not that it's not important and we need to know the signs and all those things and we'll do our due diligence. But I'm not going to sit up here and read from Revelations every week. It's not going to happen. There are some churches that do that. Now, barring some of those guideposts that God has given our church, there's not a whole lot of things we'll say no to. In fact, I've had some folks in the church, some volunteers, and even leadership at times say, you guys seem to say yes to everything, and sometimes you get burnt real hard about it. Yeah, we do. I'd rather get burnt in you pursuing what God's called you to do than tell you to sit up and shut up and sit down, pay your tithe, and do what I tell you. You'll never be fulfilled in that. And it's not my job to tell you what the Holy Spirit should be telling you. It's not my job to tell you where God is motivating you and moving you. Now, along the way, there might be pastoral correction. You might say, hey, pastor, I feel that God's leading me and moving in me with the gift of wisdom. That's great, wonderful. But if every suggestion is so dumbed down that it doesn't ever really work out, maybe God has a different line for you to walk in. So we have to judge things based on outcome, but we don't ever tell you no. We'd rather tell you to develop and to grow and to be all that God's called you to be. Does that make sense? So I believe in this. It's time for us as a church, as we move past COVID and as we move towards normalcy, to get focused. Because you'll never be more happy than pursuing and discovering kingdom building in tandem with God. You'll never be more happy than that. You'll never be more fulfilled than you are when you are fulfilling the plan and call that God has for your life. Now, I know many of you look at my station and think, that's easy for you, you're a pastor. You have to say that. If I wasn't here standing in this pulpit, I would be pastoring some group of people even in an everyday job. Why? Because there's, it's part of my motivation. I want to keep people in the fold. I want to keep people in that right space. I want to move people towards the desired outcome. It's part of who I am. I can't get away from it. I tried. When I was a little kid, the next door neighbor, I had to bring him to Jesus. We're five years old. Preached Jesus to him right to his face. Said, Matt, you got to get saved. You're going to hell. Matt said, all right, let's do this. Let's, let's pray the prayer. We prayed the prayer. Get out in our little sandbox area, just, I don't know, a little play area not too long afterwards. And my mom overhears the conversation. Matt slips and says something. I said, Matt, we got to do it all over again. You backslid. Come on, let's pray. This five or six years old. It's a motivation of my heart. I'm not going to get away from it. There's no sense in denying it. But this is what God has called each of us to do, to develop, to find the purpose, to find how we kingdom build in tandem with God, and to fulfill the destiny of our heart. The process requires a lot of intentionality. There's a lot of to-dos in the process, but there's also a ton of things you're not supposed to do. I'd like to say that personally I could say yes to every invitation, to every meeting, to every call, but I can't. Sometimes there are things I need to focus on first that make more sense. When the church was younger, there were certain things that the church, as a pastor, I had to just focus my time on and tons and tons of time on it. Today, some of those things have changed because we have more leadership and I'm able to push things off onto other people. That whole motivation took time to change and develop and mature. It became a process of discipling or discipleship or discipline where I learned how to do things at a different level. 
give you the example of Stephen Covey has the, the jars, right? And you've seen the rock example, most of you, hopefully, if you haven't, look it up on YouTube. It's a great example. But he takes a bunch of little pebbles and pours them in a, in a, in a cylinder tube and then these big rocks and puts it on top. And there's no way that they can manage the, the same amount of rocks in that tube. Then he takes all of the items out, puts the big rocks in first, dumps the little rocks and pebbles of sand in second, and everything fills up equally. Well, the, the point of that is very simple. Take the big things and handle those first. Take the big things, the things that matter, and work on those first. So if you feel God calling you in a certain area, go after it. If God called you right now and he said, I want you to be a lawyer, guess what? You're going to have to go to college. You're going to have to get a degree. Maybe you haven't even started the process. The easiest thing to do is start filling out the paperwork. Find a school that you can get accepted to, start filling out the paperwork. And I don't care if it's Caribbean University SOS. I don't care what it is. Find a place and start the process. If God called you to be a business owner, it doesn't mean you quit your job today and make a million dollars tomorrow. It means you study and you develop in that calling and in those giftings so God can move you where he's calling you. Again, practical application. I study way more than most pastors should study for a message. I do. It's part of who I am, part of my makeup. You know, God knows how he wired me. God knew that I like to sit around some books and be a nerd and read through arguments from every single angle to figure out what God's calling, what God's saying, and what God's speaking. You know that I'm so, uh, it's a detriment, it really is, but I'm so wired this way that when I found out that, that there was this really big theological rift, and some of you won't even know what that word is, you don't care, that's fine, but there's this big theological rift in church about this idea of prosperity gospel and what that means. First of all, there is no prosperity gospel, just a, there is just a gospel. The gospel by nature is prosperous. We can get into it later, but that's the facts of the matter. So I bought every book and every theologically published paper I could find that was anti-prosperity gospel, and I read every single one of them. You know, most people would be like, why would you care so much? It's not even something that matters to a salvific issue or salvation. It's not something that you're probably going to preach on anytime soon. Why would you study? I don't know. I got a bug under my butt and decided that's what I wanted to do. But God uses that type of study habit to help me in preparing for messages. And often I'll study about 12 hours for a message that we have today. Now, that seems like a lot. It is a lot. But I like doing it. It's part of how God wired me. I don't see it as something to dread. I see it as something I delight in, something that God's called me to do. There are other pastors who, if I said you have to study for 12 hours for a single message, their heads would explode. They'd look at me like I'm crazy. And the, what I think are the crazy guys are the guys that have almost no notes in the Bible, and they get up there and say, well, the Holy Spirit will lead me. I'm thinking, you are a nut job and a half. I believe in the Holy Spirit, and I believe in the leading of the Holy Spirit, but I know for me, I need to have a little bit of tools ready in my pocket for when the Holy Spirit leads to speak on something. And some of these guys are so motivated by the prophetic, they just get up and wing it, and I think, good Lord, what's wrong with you? And they have good, honest churches. They're developing a good, solid theology. I'm not taking anything away, but they're motivated differently than I am. We have to know how we're wired, how God motivates us for discipline to really be an honest factor in our life. The key, honestly, to winning your race is discipline. It's not a bad word. It's a word Paul uses, discipline the body, discipline yourself. Why? Because the end result is good. The end result is godly. The end result is a crown that we are 
carving out of this life to eventually hand over to our Savior. The devil's biggest tactic in this world is to disrupt kingdom building of the church and the individual. He wants to disrupt you from kingdom building as soon as he can. Why? Because if he does, he knows he makes a headway into culture. And there's a headway that you can stop, that only you can stop, that only you are the barrier for. But the less you are kingdom building, the more likelihood is he's going to slip into culture in that arena. Sometimes it's a heavy responsibility. But we need to learn to focus on delight-directed discipline. I know God wired me a certain way, so I don't, I don't get freaked out about study time and study habits. I know that's how God wired me. God's plan and discipline in our life brings delight. It brings a sense of peace and joy. When you know God's called you to something and he says, all right, go do it, and you go do what God's called you to do, guess what? You delight in it. I'll give you an example. For Christmas, my son was given a Lego set that would grow, uh, would build an Iron Man mask, and he's very proud of it. And we had a set of time that Nash could build that Lego set. Now, there's work involved. He had to read through the instructions. Dad wasn't going to help him. This is the first one he's going to do on his own. He's going to make it happen. It's going to be great. He's all excited. But there's a drive there to build that Lego set. There's a drive there to get his hands dirty, to get his hands busy, and to make that image that's on the box, and then to show it off in his room. You know, he didn't dread building that, even though it took two or three days. He didn't come to the table and lay out the Lego pieces and lay out the instructions, or the constructions, as he calls them. Told him he's never allowed to say anything different. It's too cute. I don't care if he's 50. I want him saying constructions. It's awesome. And he lays out the paperwork, he lays out the pieces, and day after day he builds towards a result. There wasn't one moment where he disciplined himself, pulled back from the table, said, this is too much work, I don't want to do this. Tony Stark already has a mask, he doesn't need mine. (laughs) He went through the process of building and developing this mask, and now it sits proudly in his room. See, for many of us, we think that when God disciplines us or forces us into a disciplined lifestyle, that somehow it strips joy. It doesn't if that's what you're called to do. If you're called to serving kids, you're not going to look at every single Sunday in kids as a job. You're going to look at that as your reasonable service of worship to the church. Sarah gets up here, and there are times when it's work. Trust me, there are times the, 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 the audio system doesn't work right, the technology doesn't work right, and it's work. She's got to muscle through it. But there's so much joy that comes when she expresses her gift to the community because what she's built through the team and what she builds through the surface is her reasonable service of worship to the church and to God himself. I don't care what it looks like and how disciplined your life needs to be. Learn to do the work that God's called you to well. And we have for far too long made work a dirty word. There's a virtue in work that doesn't come by anything else. There's a virtue in hard work that doesn't come by anything else. 
fact of the matter is that when we implore this idea of delight-focused discipline over work for the sake of work, it's kind of like a trapeze artist. There's discipline, that's your safety net, the rules and regulations of how you do what God's called you to do. If you're in this church, there are some rules and some regulations. If you believe God's called you and gifted you in the healing aspect, you gotta get trained by Randy and his team. If you feel that God's called you to the prophetic, you have to get trained by Robin and Bill and their team. Why is that? Because there's a level, there's a safety net of discipline. And as you're flying through the air as a trapeze artist reaching from rung to rung, you feel the exhilaration, the wind in your hair. You feel yourself letting go and just doing what God's called you to. And it feels fun and exhilarating and, and, and exciting. But let's say you miss a rung. If you miss a rung, then you fall smack dab into the discipline of what God called you to, it's the safety net. If there's no discipline, there's no safety net, you hit the concrete. And that's where too many people jump out and to do what God's called them to do. And like that trapeze artist, they're flying through the air, they're flying fast, they feel the exhilaration and they goof up for just a moment and they hit the floor with a thud and they step back and go, God, I don't wanna do that again. No, no, use discipline as your safety net so that even though you might miss a wrong from time to time, discipline is that thing that bounces you back, back up and gets you back motivated in the game. The kingdom of God is family. I think we all are aware of that. Hopefully if you're not, that's why family is our middle name, Grace Family Church. Everyone is on a journey together. We're not doing this alone. But you win a prize, not because we compete against one another, but ultimately because we compete against the forces in our culture, in our world. We compete against the sin-stained world to draw people into Jesus. But the fact is, because we're a family, we understand there's different levels of maturity. Immaturity is not a sin. It's a state of being. It's remedied by experience and growth, but immaturity is not a sin. Too many people look at the church the community of believers that we have here, and they say, well, look at this one. He's at this level, and look at that one. She's at that level, and they think they can't measure up. I'll be honest. Maybe you've come here today, and you've looked at your life, and you don't feel you can measure up in a church standard. Maybe you don't feel that you can measure up in a sense of the life that you're living. Maybe you feel too far gone, and you've wrecked it and messed it up too much. You've got to understand God's grace is so much bigger than that and that he moves us and pulls on our heart to a station of maturity to where we grow in him. Immaturity is not a sin. Immaturity is not a place where we lose it. Immaturity just means that we might not have had the experience. We might not have had the opportunity for growth that others have had. Maybe you've come from a, a religious system that didn't give you the opportunity to grow. That's not your fault. That's the system's fault. Break out of the system. Allow yourself to grow in all that God has for you. We need to learn to sacrifice the short-term for the long-term gain. The short-term pleasure for the long-term gain. Oftentimes the short-term looks good, it looks exciting, it looks inviting, and so we go right into it and not think of the long-term gain that we could have if we played the long game. You know, you and I are building a life. We're building a life in Christ. It's gonna take years and years and years to develop. It's okay that it doesn't happen overnight. When I was a young man in my, well, late teens and early 20s, a gentleman who was a, a, a frequent uh, speaker at the church that I went to 
felt that he had a word from God. He felt that he had a prophetic word from God for me a few times. Some of those things that he spoke over my life didn't happen for 20 years. Some of those things that he spoke over my life are just now starting to develop. I'm 40. Good God, I'm 40. I hate saying I am. I am 40. It's just, I know it's just a number. Well, it's a big number. <laughs> but some of these things took time to develop. Don't allow yourself to be cut short because we want an instant microwave. We live in a society that can drive up to a service window and we can have at our disposal more menu options than middle-aged kings ever could have thought about. We live in a society that has more riches and more wealth at our fingertips than we could understand, and we want things instantly. You press that button, you want it now. And I can prove it to you. If the Wi-Fi in this room is just a half second too short, you'll be calling media comment an instant. What is wrong? Get somebody over, get attacked, fix this. Because we're impatient. Allow what God is developing in you to take the time it needs to develop. Be the athlete. You're winning a prize. It's not going to be tomorrow. You might run a few races and stumble and fall. You might get in a few prize fights and get beat up here and there. But get back in the ring. Get yourself disciplined so that you can accomplish the goal that God has for you. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 and 6. We're going to start there. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1. Timothy, my dear son... Be strong through the grace that God gives you in Christ. I love how he opens this up. Get strong for the purpose. Get strong for the journey. Get strong for kingdom building. He calls him a dear son, meaning there's a generational aspect to kingdom building. That there's the grace of God that it's expressed in our lives. Verse 2, you've heard me teach that. Uh, that you've heard me teach things that have been confirmed by reliable witnesses. Now teach these truths to other trustworthy people who will be able to pass them on to others. This is a beautiful example of what the church should look like. Paul goes to a son, really, in the ministry. He says, I've entrusted you with many trustworthy things, and you know they're good because other folks have testified to how good they are. Now you need to pass them on to some others other trustworthy people, so that they can in turn pass them on to another generation. See, we forget that kingdom building isn't a singular silo event. It's about building for the future. It's about building so the kingdom of God and what we are called to develops and expands over our life and into the lives of others. Move on to verse three. Endure suffering along with me as a good soldier in Christ. There's going to be times where God's called you to kingdom build, and you're going to meet opposition. You're going to meet oppression. You're going to meet persecution. That's okay. You're on the right track. I kind of believe this. I was taught this when I was in car sales, and we were talking about internet and, and some of the advertising that we were doing and, and some of the cold calls that we were doing. And the manager said to the group of people that were there managing uh, some of these departments, he said, listen, if you don't get a hang up every once in a while and a big old F you, you ain't calling enough. He said, listen, you got to be persistent. And you're going to get knocked down. They're going to say mean things. They're going to take you off. They're going to tell you to take them off their call list. And they're going to say all kinds of nasty things to you if you call too much. It's okay. It's like those car warranty 
calls that come up in like the middle of the night. 2 a.m., it's an emergency phone call from Kentucky, and you pick up. How's your car warranty doing? Are you kidding me? The same persistence as a good soldier we need to move forward with regardless of the circumstance. Verse 4, soldiers don't get tied up in the affairs of civilian life. For then they cannot please the officer who enlisted them. Verse 5. And athletes cannot win the prize unless they follow the rules. Verse 6. And the hardworking farmers should be the first to enjoy the fruits of their labor. Paul gives multiple analogies here. That we are in an army. We are, we are combatants in a war. That if we're honest with ourselves, there are certain things we need to be focused on above others. Developing, building, growing the kingdom of God first, primarily. Then civilian life can come into play. We are to be good athletes, disciplined to do what God's called us to do. But that once we receive and reap our reward, we should be the first to enjoy the fruit of our labor. I love how Paul directs the conversation. He says it's a, it's, it's a generational thing. It's an intergenerational dynamic that we in church, we see folks who've been in church for a long time. Maybe you've been in church 20, 30, 40 years. You've heard all these sermons before. Hallelujah. You could preach them better than I could. Great. But then Paul gives us a position that every Christian should take. Whether you're mature or immature, whether you've been on this journey for a long time and you're a seasoned fighter, or whether or not this is your first time ever in a church building, there's a position we take, one who is being lifted. We are always being lifted by mentors and trusted voices. We are always being lifted by those who can speak life and the life of the gospel into us, but we cannot forget the secondary position. We are always lifting others. This is the chain that God has called the church to. This is why this is such an important message for you to get into your heart of kingdom building, that you know that you're called to an era of influence, pastor, teacher, prophet, evangelist, that you know God has deposited in you gifts, power gifts of the Holy Spirit. They don't have to be weird and kooky, but that God can empower you in your everyday life and that you are motivated by certain characteristics. Maybe you're generous by nature. Maybe, maybe you're a kind-hearted person by nature. Maybe you're an organizer or an administrator by nature. Maybe you're a leader. But God takes this, this multi-layered effect and then pushes you into a church community and says, someone's going to help grow you, but you've got to grow others. Someone's going to lift you up and help you develop and grow. And we love that side, right? All right, I'm being challenged. I'm being pushed. They're developing and helping develop me into the character and nature of Christ. But this other position where we're lifting others, that's where we get scared. I'm not good enough. You're right. I'm not smart enough. Correct. I don't have enough Bible knowledge. You hit that one on the head. The Bible doesn't say, and we don't read in Scripture, that Paul says you've got to be perfect. In fact, as we read last week, we read that Paul was chasing a means of perfection, that perfection that happened in Christ Jesus that ultimately would apprehend all of our lives. But he said as the, at that time, the chief apostle of the church, he hadn't reached that status yet. It didn't stop him from reaching down and picking up others. He felt as though he was at that time one of the chief leaders in the church globally. 
not just the local church, globally. He still said, I've not reached this air perfection, but I'm going to teach, instruct, pull, yank you from where you are to where you need to be. Let's understand that there's always somebody below us. There's always somebody who's starting this journey for the first time. Maybe they're starting it over and they're starting from station zero. We served under a pastor in Kentucky, Pastor Bob Rogers, and he had this analogy that I absolutely love. And he said, listen, you might have been a Christian for a long time and you feel on a meter of one to 10, you're at a 10, but because you're so complacent and you're shifting and sliding towards an eight, that's not a good position to be in. And maybe you feel that you're of the lowest of the low. And you know, last night on Saturday, you got into all kinds of mess of trouble. There's a list of sins you need to repent for today. You're at literally station one, but you're sliding towards a two. That's the best place you can be because at least you're moving up the ladder. We're not called here as a church to force you into some kind of weird repentance state. Like you have to confess all your sins to me or to someone else. As you're being lifted, God will develop within you a character nature that needs to and wants to repent. But that doesn't mean you're going to go behind some black cloth somewhere and confess your sins to somebody in the name of the Father, the Son, blah, 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 hit 14 Hail Marys and you're on your way and you don't think about it again. What this means is that we come into a relationship, relationship building, where we're being lifted, but as we're being lifted, others see the change transpiring in our life, and we lift others. This whole series is about this concept. You need mentors to guide you. You need mentors to show you the path, but you also need to be mentoring others. This isn't an age thing. You never, you never mature to a certain age and finally you're the age worthy of being a mentor. This isn't a, a, a maturity thing to where you finally mature to a place where you're worthy of being a mentor. There's always somebody who's struggling, who's in a place you used to be in. Now's the time. Reach that hand down. Pull them up. This is kingdom building at its finest. Will you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come to the Word. We thank you, God, that as we come, Lord, you shape and refire us. That, God, we learn to be those who are developed in your image and likeness. We learn to be those, God, who are purposeful in advancing your kingdom. God, help us to understand how we're made and, God, how you've cultivated us. But, God, help us more to see that there's a life in Christ that as we are disciplined, we are being lifted and mentored, but we are also lifting others. God, help us get a passion for the purpose that you've called us to, the destiny that you've carved out in front of us. God, help us live that passion out every single day of the world. In Jesus' name, amen.